Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 230th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Dan Moisand. Dan is the principal of Moisand Fitzgerald Tamayo, a fee-only RIA headquartered in Melbourne, Florida, that manages over $800 million in assets for 650 clients. What's unique about Dan, though, is his ability to communicate the value and power of financial planning to clients in a straightforward and compelling manner illustrating the process that if an advisor really focuses their communication on the planning issues at every meeting, then their clients will view them as a planner, regardless of how their advisory fees are structured. In this episode, we talk in depth about why Dan feels that there's nothing wrong with offering the average advisory firm services for the average advisory fee and why their firm doesn't discount. Why Dan sees the concerns about fee compression is overblown and that the AUM model remains a perfectly viable method of charging clients and why the trajectory of financial planning itself shouldn't be engaged on the outlook of technology forces trying to simplify the advisor value proposition, but rather on the direction of complexity of the typical consumer's financial life, which isn't getting any simpler these days, and it's just driving even more of them to seek financial advice. We also talk about Dan's views on why it's the relationships that advisors forge with their clients that ultimately matter most, and why technology may be an invaluable tool, but it's not a competitor to advisors because it just doesn't care about the client the way another human being does. Why it's important to be simply of service to clients rather than trying to always be the smartest person in the room, especially when Dan's clientele literally include rocket scientists from the Central Florida space programs. And the way that Dan structures his initial conversations with clients around assessing their confidence levels in all the different aspects of their financial lives. Because as Dan puts it, the real value of financial planning at its core is helping people to become or remain confident in all of those areas for the rest of their lives. And be certain to listen to the end, where Dan discusses his firm's recent addition of a team member who's exclusively in charge of building out workflows, automations, and software integrations their planners can spend more time servicing clients. How despite all the changes in the industry and the ways in which advisors spend their time, the one thing that hasn't changed in 30 years of Dan's career is that financial planning is around relationships and helping people. And why being a good financial planner is less about the compensation or business model that we choose and more about being skilled enough at communication to be able to explain to someone why they'd be better off going through the financial planning process. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Dan Moisand. Welcome, Dan Moisand, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Well, thank you, Michael. This is pretty exciting, man. Been a long, been a long time. It has been a long time. You know, we've been sequestered off in, in pandemic world for you know the better part of 12 plus months now, you know, slowly starting to reemerge from our shells as as people get vaccinated and, and offices starts go opening and travel starts getting underway again. And I'm excited about the the podcast episode today because you know we've we talk a lot in the industry these days about evolving fee models and and business models and and you know we talk about that theme a good bit here on the podcast. We we do you include I guess I'll call like a, a disproportionate number of 
advisors who are doing new and different fee models because I, I do like to just put new ideas out there, let let the advisor community see some different ways that things are getting done. But you know, at the same time, like I'm actually one of the people who still pounds the table that there's nothing wrong with the AUM model. I, I think the the predictions of the death of the AUM model are are grossly over exaggerated. You know, I've just looking at industry benchmarking sites for the past 10 years, we have talked about like robo advisors causing fee compression, robo advisors causing fee compression. And then you actually look at the industry benchmarking studies on fees and like average revenue yield of an RIA basically hasn't moved a basis point, not one in in 10 years. Like all the all the pretended fee compression doesn't doesn't seem to be happening in practice. And you know, I, I know you have just spent the better part of 20 years running I guess I don't mean this in a negative way, but like just a good old fashioned AUM model where you charge clients an AUM fee and provide them comprehensive services and and have what to me is still one of my kind of favorite sayings and statements around fees. I apologize if I butcher it because I just I remember you saying it once and it stuck with me so well that you would describe your fees as saying, look, we're not the most expensive and you don't want the cheapest. Amen, brother. No doubt. We just we charge a reasonable <laughs> fee. Yeah. We do some good stuff. Right. Clients are happy. We're making this way harder than it needs to be. It, totally. There's, you know, there's a whole segment of the population that the dominant decision point is price. And, you know, I, I, I make, I'll say this a lot. I make a good faith effort to do a lot of things when speaking with prospective clients, and I make a good faith effort to try to get people that are wired that way to see that there is a difference. But it, it's kind of an uphill battle, and most of the time, if they're wired that way. They're just looking for the cheapest price because they, they think that's better. But in real life, most people don't make decisions that way. I mean, price itself conveys what you believe the value of your product or service is worth. So, I mean, you can go out there and, and tell everybody in the world that everybody else is too is char- overcharging you. They're too expensive. Come see me because I'm cheap. And all you're going to get is a bunch of cheapskates. They're going to lo- leave you as soon as they find something that looks cheaper than what you do. It's 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 a, it's a classic thing we learn when we get a, a degree from any business school in the, in the country that the low price provider has a, a unique set of challenges, and it has nothing to do with delivering highly personalized, high quality advice to me. So we don't we have no interest in trying to undercut anybody's price. Our prices are, are very fair. They're very average. And we're average in a lot of ways. And we actually promote our averageness in various ways. And, 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 and pricing is one of them. We're not expensive and you don't want cheap. And that really resonates with a lot of people very quickly and they get, they get the point. In others, it doesn't. So that, they, they could be other people's clients. You know? you know, Mark Tabergian used to have this saying that, that you know, a lot of businesses try to, try to be better and outcompete and everything to, to try to win business. Is it like, you know, the truth is you can be average in everything except one thing. Like you do need one thing that you are better than everybody else that you can stand out and differentiate on. But, you know, you, it's totally fine to be average in everything else. And that includes like, you can be completely average on fees right in there with what everybody else charges. As long as you got a little something that you do a little better for at least some segment of people that you can win those clients at the margin. You can build a great business from that. Absolutely. It's not getting easier for the public out there. You know, personal finance has just gets more and more complex all the time. It's not like I, I don't see any slowdown in demand from the populace. I don't I don't see any forces that would slow 
demand. I mean, the tax code is, what, what was the last tax simplification act? What, 50,000 pages or some ridiculous thing like that? You know, that doesn't get any less complex. The markets don't become less volatile. The economy's not less complex. The politicians aren't any less nuts. I mean, there's all these forces coming on to people. They're not trained to absorb it and look at the trade-offs and understand the technical details and all that. I mean, this is a fantastic business to be in, has been for the last 30 years, and I think it's going to be for the next you know, foreseeable future. I mean, to me, there is something very, very primal at the core of, of just the value of financial planning and giving financial advice that you know, at the end of the day is as long as people have complexities that they can't necessarily figure out and navigate on their own, there's always a role for paying an advisor to help you through that complexity. And so you know, if you if you want to figure out whether financial planning and the advice business has a future and and just the direction of fees, like you don't look at the competition, the direction of competition, you you look at the direction of complexity. And you know, I mean, just to say, well, we had all these robo advisors and all this competition, but fees didn't go down one basis point over the past 10 years. What happened? I'm like, well, look back over the past 10 years. If I was going to use a word to describe the difference between today and what life was like 10 years ago, simpler not the word I would use. <laughs> Less complex, not coming to mind. Very true. And it, you know, the, the revenue top level, right? Uh, pricing has not come down. And I've been surprised that we have not experienced much in the way of margin compression either. You know, it seemed to make sense to me that we would be delivering more in different types of services over, over time. And over the last 20 years as an ensemble, that is true. But mar margins haven't really been hurt. Some of that's technological. Some of that is just learning to be more efficient. I think it's, I think it's going to come. It hasn't come to us quite yet. Technology in particular really helps with efficiencies. So I'm, I'm not sure how much compression there's going to be there either. We're preparing for some, but I, I don't think it's going to be, at least with us, massive. Yeah. I mean, when you when you look out at the broad industry benchmarking studies, like there was a little bit of margin compression that showed up sort of industry wide in the in the mid teens, like kind of I don't know it was like 2014 to 2017, just industry wide profit margins came down a, a, a point or few, which you know in the middle of what was otherwise a raging bull market, like that's actually notable because usually our margins get better when markets go up because the revenue goes up and the team's still the same team, but even that rebounded. A few years later, and uh, yeah, like margins aren't dramatically different than they were ten years ago either. You know, the 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 only exception I really see to that, you know, there there is a small subset of advisors that were just really high fee ten years ago. There were still a few out there that like were charging like two percent advisory fees. You know, fee schedules that started at one point nine. I don't see those anymore, and I do find a few of those outliers do seem to have been squeezed out. But when you get to sort of the firms in the middle, like the median firm that wasn't doing that stuff in the first place, yeah, like pricing doesn't look that different. Margins don't look that different. We do a little more for our clients than we did before. We've got a little better technology to make it more efficient than we did before. And the business doesn't look that different than it does 10 years ago, aside from turns out now we meet with everyone by Zoom and they don't have to come into our office. Yeah, but most people don't like that. <laughs> So, you know, that's uh, that's something that's been talked about ad nauseum for the last year or so is, you know, changing nature of communications with clients and, you know, remote communication and Zoom and all that. 
Yeah, it, it was there before. It's there now. I mean, clients do Zoom because it's a means to an end, but the majority of them don't like it. You know, it's nice. It's it's nice to have that option. We had that option before COVID. You know, and people weren't picking it up. I think I think on the margins, yeah, more people will use Zoom more often. But man, when it's something important, right? Like your life savings and big decisions. Just like you don't want cheap, you 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 don't want to do it over the internet. <laughs> you know, a lot of people, at least our clientele. So. Yeah, I mean, Zoom's a great tool. All those online tools are great, but it doesn't. Re- it's ne- never been a replacement for, you know, understanding human-to-human communication. I say this all the time because I'm, I, you know, I love technology, I love software, but man, it's one of the most overrated things in the world too. It's, re- I mean, I can't believe how many people just obsess about should I use Right Capital or eMoney or MoneyTree or Money Guy Pro or whatever. And man, you, you know, all these. Almost every topic we talk about has been studied to death. I mean, when I meet with a client and they've got, you know, two million bucks and they need to pull fifty thousand dollars out a year to, you know, match up with their pension, social security to, to pay their bills, I'm not real worried about them running out of money. I don't need to do a Monte Carlo simulation to figure that out, you know. Software is really good for very particular things, you know, very precise tax planning, for instance. Yeah, software awesome for that kind of stuff. But the man, the one thing that software does not do is it doesn't care. It doesn't give a damn about you, what you feel about your money or your kids or your kids' spouses or any of that stuff at all, or your boss, none of that. They don't care about you. The software does not care about you at all. Planners care about their clients. They care how these things impact. They care about the intangible parts of this whole process. I mean, money is there as a tool. It's something to support your life. And software could crunch numbers all day long, but you know you could put some pretty charts in front of people. But if they don't think that, that you get them, you understand them, and you care about them, you know you don't have a very good relationship, and it's vulnerable to disappearing at some point in time. I love that that phrase. Just the one thing that software doesn't do is care. Like someone, someone's gonna that's gonna end out on someone's website, their marketing material at some point. I I like that. I really like that. So Dan, tell us a bit about your advisory firm then, right? We've kind of set the table a little around in you know industry trends and the the future of fee compression or not and the future of margin compression or not. So talk to us about just your advisory business. We've kind of painted the world of like the the average firm of average fees. What is, what is the average firm with average fees look like today? Well, we're we're not average, Michael. We're, well, we're extraordinary in so we're many ways. We're in some things, exceptionally exceptionally good in many other ways. That's right. That's right. So yes, it's it's almost entirely AUM, and I, I'm really not interested in defending AUM, you know, per se. I mean, it has its flaws, but so does every other compensation arrangement. The idea that AUM, you know, won't work anymore. I don't buy that at all. You know, it's a mismatch for certain types of clients that, you know, don't have any A to M, right? <laughs> so that's 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 obvious. You know, a compensation scheme either fits a situation or it doesn't, but they all have conflicts. They all, all those conflicts have to be managed. And, you know, one of the benefits of the AUM is it's very easy for clients. It's also easy from a tax perspective, right? You could bill investment advisory fees from an IRA, for instance, and not cause a taxable event for your client under the law. That's not that's not true for other types of fees, is it? And so I don't I don't see it going away for that reason and, and for the ease. And you know, I don't subscribe to the idea that people won't appreciate the financial planning unless you make it painful for them to write out a check, you know, that 
that's garbage too. I mean, I don't see any reason to make it difficult on clients or painful for clients. It shouldn't be that way at all. They should look at your fees as somewhere between a fair deal and a gift, if you ask me. Explain that more to me though. I just, because as I'm sure you know, like that, that is a pretty active debate out there for a lot of segments of the industry. Cl- clients won't value the planning if you don't charge them for it. You don't charge them separately outside the AUM fee. So how do you how do you make sure they're valuing the financial planning if you're predominantly just like air quotes just if you're predominantly just charging them an AUM fee and doing all this planning work? Yes, it's pretty simple. Pay attention to what you are discussing with your client and how you set up the relationship from the start. If you start the relationship, our job is to manage your money, then that becomes the obsession, right? I think clients have every right to expect something from their investment advisors if they, when the investment advisors are managing their money, right? They, they have expectations there. They should expect that to be managed appropriately, right? But is that what you're emphasizing every time you meet with them. So our clientele relies on us for a lot of stuff. They delegate a lot. You know, the, the DIY, the delegators, the validators, we're definitely in the delegation camp with respect to nuts and bolts, day-to-day activity. We try to do as much stuff for clients that we're legally allowed to do for them. So investment management is, you know, tailor-made for that, right? But we don't drag them into the office every quarter to go over their accounts. That's not delegating. You're undermining the value of the delegation when you do that. So we're, we're specifically marketing to people that want this done, want this done for them professionally. We keep them informed. They've got, you know, the portals. I can see it every day. We report to them every quarter, you know, we, all that, all that kind of stuff. But most of our conversations with clients, it starts from day one from a financial planning perspective. They have to understand what planning is all about all the different areas that we get into with clients, how all that ties in together. It's all integrated. You know, you can't spend money on one thing and also spend it on something else, right? There's all these trade-offs that face them. That's what planning is about. It's about understanding what the opportunities for that, this family are, what the re, uh, obstacles are for the, this family, what resources they have, what they see coming, what they're afraid of, what they're enthusiastic about, what opportunities might uh, arise later on down the road, and integrating all this stuff, understanding the trade-offs, getting that 360-degree view, and have that inform the portfolio construction process. The portfolio is the engine that drives the plan in most cases, at least with our clientele. People that come to us, they want financial planning, and they want their investments managed well, and they want those two things coordinated. So we don't do reviews. We do previews. Very different. So twice a year, I'm calling clients for a quote touch base call. And it's like, okay, here's here's what's going on. What do you got going on for the year? Any big expenses coming? How's your cash flow? Is that still floating the boat? Still getting all the bills paid? Yes, you know, there's going to be some tax code changes. We don't know what they are. Here's what it looks like they might be. Here's what they just passed in the stimulus bill. Here's how it affects you. And then we go from there. Later in the year, toward the end of the year, we have another touch base call. We see what's happened. We make sure all the year-end stuff's doing. We tee up the next year. We just keep things very current. What do we need to be doing now? What do we need to be doing now? What do we need to be doing next? And working through at a very, very short-term timeframe, which is kind of an anti-planning 
you know, bought, but most people are, you know, like me and everybody else, we're obsessed with the here and now. What are we doing today? What do we need to be doing today? And you focus on all those broad subject areas, how they integrate with each other. You help people see the big picture, understand the trade-offs and make good decisions. They don't get as obsessed about the investment management. And if your messaging about investments is adequate, where you're really educating them about how markets actually work and taking an approach that makes sense, that's prudent, you know, they, they, they learn to understand what's going on with the investments and how that affects them. So it's, it's what you emphasize. If you emphasize the planning, they'll view you as a planner and they'll view it as a planning relationship. If you emphasize the investments, they'll view as, you as an investment person. It's not the compensation model that does that. It's what comes out of your mouth. Yeah, I love that framing. Like the the value isn't determined by the fee. The value is determined by your conversation. You know, like the the value is determined by what you put on the meeting agenda whenever you're meeting with the client, right? If, if portfolio review is at the top of the meeting agenda or you don't have a meeting agenda and you just show up with a quarterly performance report, like guess where all the conversation is going to be? If if you if every meeting starts with a meeting agenda and every meeting agenda starts with financial planning conversations and the you know the portfolio performance report is at the end and you may or may not even get to it clients start perceiving a different value proposition because the conversation is different i mean like well, every other year i think on average there's a 10% correction right it's not if it's going to happen it's when it's going to happen what are you going to do about it so you have to educate clients not on how you're going to get out before it goes down or in before it goes up, unless unless that's your pitch. If you're a market timer, you know, God bless you. But that's not what we do here. We don't we don't play the market or otherwise gamble with our clients' money, right? We are prudent long-term investors, boring investors, right? Your odds are stacked in your favor. You're going to get a good result if you're in equities for the long term. Short term, it's a it's it's much less certain. You don't want to do that, right? But you have to put up with the short-term crap to get to the long-term payoff. And it's not if it's going to happen, it's when. So, you know, the education process for the client is very important. They're coming to us because they really don't want to worry about this stuff. They're delegators, remember? They don't want to worry about this. They want us to worry about it for them, but they do need to have basic education on how markets work and what to expect. And we've we've thrown in over the last decade plus, 15, 20 years probably, a really heavy, heavy emphasis on education about the financial media. Because the financial media is of no help whatsoever. It's all here and now, right? What to do now? What, what's hot now? Who's hot now? Who made a killing? Who lost a fortune? And out of curiosity, just how how do you try to, just for lack of a better word, like deprogram your clients from financial media world? I mean, just are there things you do or stuff you found to say to them that actually works to get that client who just always seems to have CNBC on the background. How do you actually manage to deprogram some of them or get them to focus elsewhere? Well, they have to be willing to do it. So I, I mean, I, I joke about CNBC junkies. That's the term that I use, CNBC junkies. There's nothing wrong with watching the news. There's nothing wrong with watching personal finance news until it gets you so wound up that you're taking actions based on short-term guesses about which way markets will be affected by whatever you predict is going to be happening. That's not what we do here. If you want to do that, you need to find somebody else to bounce these ideas off of. If you want this managed prudently, you know, then we've got 
we've got something to talk about. And a lot of times one spouse is the junkie and the other one knows that the person's not <laughs> just driving themselves nuts. And there's, there's, I can't, I can help them try to mitigate that, but I can't, I can't be the one to take on their disagreement. Right. So the, the first step in managing that and converting people is not to take them on as clients if they're not willing to be converted. So what, I mean, in the initial meeting, I'll ask, do you watch a lot of cable news or, or, um, personal finance dudes like CNBC and they'll say, some of them say yes. And I'll say, are you willing to quit? Flat out. Are so you, you willing are, to quit? I mean, you asked that like in, in the initial meeting with clients, like, do, do you, do you, do you watch shows like CNBC? And if they say yes, are you, are you willing to quit that if you start working with right, us? Right. No, now I'm smiling. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I'm just envisioning like the, like the, the, the deadpan look when they say, yes, I watch CNBC. Like, well, you're going to stop now. Exactly. Right? I mean, I, you know, I want to be an informed citizen. I want my clients to be informed citizens. My clients are very well educated. I mean, this is the Space Coast, Michael. We have the place is crawling with rocket scientists. We're putting some men up, up going literally, up like space literally tomorrow morning. You, you, you get clients who literally are rocket scientists. <laughs> they know it's not rocket science, right? They're really smart people. They just don't have the expertise and they might not have exactly the temperament that helps make those things work. And that, that's where we come in. So, yeah, so it's, it's, it's planning. First, planning is not, it's not a thing. Create a plan. I hear that a lot. I hear like, what, what is your deliverable? What is the plan? You know, it's fine to have something that's, you know, physical piece of paper that they can get their hands on. And that, that's all good. Doesn't need to be more than a page. I think for most people, they don't, they don't want the detail behind it. They don't want to know how the watch works. They want to know what time it is. That's all fine, but it starts with planning. You can't come here and say, well, I just want you to manage the money. I don't want to do all this financial planning stuff. Sorry. Just want to do a plan. I don't want you to manage the money. That's not us either. Our clientele have assets that they want managed. There's nothing wrong with just wanting a plan. There's nothing wrong with having a business, a planning practice that just does planning. There are, there's a market for that. There are people that that suits them well. They'll be happy with that. That's great. Same with just the investment management. But for us, we want those things integrated. We want to be on top of it. We'll take on the responsibility for it and the liability for it. More than happy to do that. That's one of the best things about assets under management that is not talked about enough. It is true. It does not take five times as much effort to manage $5 million as it does $1 million, but there is five times as much liability. So if you're in business of giving advice, you better, you better be compensated for the additional liability. Now, we don't charge five times as much for a $5 million client as a $1 million client, but you know it scales down, so it's not that excessive either. But man, I mean, you're 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 in a business where people can sue you. You know, you better dot your eyes and cross your t's. This is serious stuff. This is a profession. This isn't this isn't a a joke. You know, this isn't a game. So get it get it straight. So so I I I have to ask just because we've set up so much of this conversation around fees and fee dynamics. Like what what is what is your fee schedule? Can I ask what that what that looks like? Sure. You know, it's publicly available, Michael, in your uh, form ADV, which you can find online at SEC.no. No. Yeah, it's one percent on the first million, 0.8 on the second, 0.5 above that. And I think there's another tier at 10 million. 25 basis points, I believe. Yeah. So one percent point eight point five at one million, two million and up. Horribly average based on all the benchmarking studies we see. So we've got, uh, you'd asked this before and I got sidetracked, which you told me I would. 800 million or so assets under management, about 650 clients. There's 18 total people, five owners, six lead advisors, four on the advisory track, 
there's three client, four client service managers. We have a general office manager, and then we have a couple other specialists, three other specialists. One's a portfolio administrator, handles all the trading. We have a data diva, as I call her. She doesn't know that. I hope she doesn't get mad. She's just handles software stuff. She's not an IT networking person, right? She doesn't configure the laptops and check the firewall. She gets Salesforce to talk to Tamarack, puts, you know, creates the workflows, tests the workflows, that kind of thing. So we don't have to do that. And then we also have just hired. So we have at least three enrolled agents on staff three more people in the program. We just hired a CPA to take over as a work into position of a tax director. And is that because tax, like is tax preparation part of your business that you have all these EAs and a CPA on the team? It is. We don't have a tax practice per se in that we won't, there are only a handful of returns that are done that aren't financial planning, wealth management clients. Not all of our financial planning, wealth management clients use us to do tax prep, but a lot of them do. They find it extremely convenient. But you know, if they're working with a good CPA or an EA or somebody that they like, does a good job, great. No problem. Happy to work with them. And do you, if you've been doing this for a while, do you do you actually see a difference in retention rates of clients that have the tax returns done internally versus the ones that are are doing it externally and your air quotes just the investment manager and financial planner? I can't say that the retention level is higher with the clients that have us do their tax returns or not, because it's really, really high at both ends. You know, It's just really, really high. I, I do hear a lot of expressions of happiness because there's never, you know, there's never a missing 1099. Toward the end of the year when we're doing tax projections, we're not guessing about dividends, interest, capital gain distributions, you know, we're integrating all of those directly, you know, from the fund companies into the tax projections. And so, you know, if we're trying to maximize, you know, the 12% bracket or something and get a number for a Roth conversion, we're right on the num- right on the number because we're using the professional tax software. It's not it's not a, it's not a Excel spreadsheet homegrown thing. It's very specific, you know, picks up all those little nuances and that's extremely helpful as well. And are you charging separately for the tax returns or is this just part of the aggregate service? No, there's a small it's so the fee if the way we describe it is it's usually more than like an H&R block and usually less than a CPA. But we're not we're not specifically trying to undercut CPAs. CPAs just tend to charge more because they're CPA firms. And and so what do you do you have a target of what you shoot for then on retention rates? Me said like you you find retention rates are high across the board for you guys, but is there a is there a target that you shoot for? A hundred percent of those still living, we wish to be clients at the end of the year. Yes. And how close do you get to a hundred percent of the not dead? Really close. That is the leading cause of uh, leaving us. Is somebody? We're not doing anything to cause this to happen. Don't get me wrong. But yeah, I mean, there's no reason for them to to go. I mean, we. It, it's very simple. Do what you say and say what you do. So. So help me understand more about, I guess, just overall va- like value proposition and what you're, what you're doing. You know, we, we've started paying this fun picture of like, so average fees, boring investments, got it. So how do you talk about the value proposition of, of the firm and getting clients on board? 
Yeah. So what do you do when you do financial planning? So first thing we do is we look at their overall situation. Look at the balance sheet, look at the income statement, right? And then we're looking for opportunities to make those look better. And so I'll explain to to clients in a, a first meeting, right? We do a screening call, usually about a half hour, just go over the basics of how, how we're structured. We're fee only. What does that mean? We're looking for, we work best with people that want to collaborate on the high level things and want to delegate day-to-day nuts and bolts, particularly the investments, because we want those things to work in concert. And people either, that resonates with them or it doesn't. And if it does, we have a first meeting. So my first meeting, it's just a conversation. There's no script. There's no slideshow, none of that. And that's, that's because of me. I'm most comfortable just having a conversation and I'll walk them through some of these concepts. So here's, here's the basic concept about your net worth statement. So let's, let's pretend we've got two people. Person number one has a half a million dollar home with a $200,000 mortgage. And then they have a hundred thousand dollars in some kind of an investment account. We won't even talk about what it is yet. Their net worth is $400,000, right? 500,000 value of the home minus 200,000 for the mortgage is 300,000 plus $100,000 investment account is $400,000. The next guy also has a $400,000 net worth. He's got a $500,000 home paid for and he has a $100,000 personal loan that he's paying 9% on. Which one would you rather be? And they'll they'll tell me. And it doesn't matter what they say. They're just giving me an example of how they think about things. But I'm making the point the two people with identical net worths are in different situations. So then the conversation is, what's best for you? How confident are you that the way you have your assets and liabilities structured is best for you given all the stuff you've got going on? And sometimes they say, I'm eminently confident. It's awesome. Sometimes they say, not at all. Okay. Next, income and expenses, same thing. And then you just go through the different subject matter. The basic stuff that you you know, you learn in CFP school, insurances. How do you feel about your insurances? Are you confident that you have the right types and the right amounts and are paying fair fees for them? Yes, it's awesome. No, I have no clue what's going on. Okay, well, tell me about that. And they'll tell you. How do you feel about your taxes? I hate it. Okay. Well, are you confident that you're, you know, don't we all? Are you confident that that your your tax liability is as low as it can be given all the things you're trying to do now and in the future? What do you mean? Okay. Well, let's talk about that. I'm confident. It's great. Okay. I'm not confident. And you just go through all these things and they'll tell you exactly what they feel good about and exactly what they don't. So that that question phrase, that kind of anchor phrase, are you are you confident? Dot dot dot, right? In in your insurance coverage, in your in your taxes, in how your net worth is structured, that seems to be a strong anchor phrase for you. You know, are are you confident in that? They'll inevitably answer yay or nay. Either way, you can say you know why or tell me more about that or something to that effect, and just just have that conversation about each of the areas of the financial planning world and. And see where you are by the end of that conversation. And you pretty much have a roadmap for what they're concerned about and would like advice. Right. So financial planning, what we do is we want to get you to a place where you can say yes to all these areas and stay saying yes for the rest of your life. Now, it's not that's not possible, okay? Because you can say yes to all these and something's going to affect it. 
right? And your, your confidence level is going to drop. The easy one to relate to is with the investments. You can be real confident you have a great investment plan and then COVID hits, the market drops 35% in six weeks or whatever it was, right? That could shake your confidence. So when that happens, our job is to step in and try to get the confidence back. You know, get you back reacquainted with the plan and why you were in what you're in and that this is something that, you know, you should be able to deal with and what tactics do we need to employ at that time. So it's a financial planning. It's a process and it's an ongoing process of maintaining a state of yes to all of these different things. And so that makes those touch base calls very easy because that's what we're doing. We're just assessing, you know, what do we see coming? What's what's what outside forces do I see coming that can affect you, Mr. and Mrs. Client? What forces do you see coming that can affect you? Let's let's you know re rehuddle and get, get make sure that confidence level stays as high as it can be as often as it can be. I love the I love the framing idea that like the what we're doing, our value in in being financial planners and doing financial planning is is we're trying to get you yet to to a yes on those confidence questions and and keep you on yes for the rest of your life. That's what people want. So that's what financial planning is. Now what financial planning with us for you Mr. client revolves around the issues that came out of that conversation. So initially this is what we're going to do. You you have no idea about your insurances. So we're going to do a good evaluation there and get that all squared away, right? I have no idea what I'm doing with taxes. Well, obviously we can we can help with that too, you know, and, and just kind of repeat it back to them in a way that they can see that we're addressing the weaknesses without undoing the strengths. That's kind of the trick. And as we know, it's a, life and planning is all about trade-offs. So it's a, it's a process to go through from from there. But that's, that's what we're doing. That's why you'll hire us because you want to be able to say yes to this all the time. So... So how does the process actually work for you from there? You said so there like there's a an intro call where the goal is finding out as you said like we, are they clients who want to collaborate on the high level things and delegate the day to day? Then you get into an intro meeting where the question is essentially are 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 there areas of your financial life where you're not confident that we can help you get more confident and stay more confident. So then what comes what comes next? So the next thing that that I do is I send them a written outline of what the engagement looks like. It's it's just it's nothing more than a recap of the meeting, really. You know, we here are the here are, here are the areas that that we will look at, and if you want to say yes to all these things. Here's a few things that they mentioned, and whatever wherever they mentioned for whatever category, and so this is. This is what we will be addressing to start with, and this is the order that we'll address that in. You know, as mentioned, here are the fees again, and you know, you let us know. Here you go. And and I'm assuming because you you've kind of got your standard list of the areas, the the sort of financial planning topic areas that you asked about. That this is basically like a pretty templated sort of engagement letter, follow-up letter at this point. Like, you know, here's my here's my eight areas and I'm just going to fill in for each. Like they did talk about this. They did not talk about that. They do have an issue here. They don't have an issue there. Yeah. Now it's, it's more effective both for them and for us if we're as specific as possible, right? If you just send out, you know, you want to be able to say yes to the question, are my assets and liabilities structured in an optimal way? 
Right. You know, that's nothing. It's, it's, you know, you right. get into Cli- clients can, clients can sniff out a template very, yes. very quickly. So I'm, I'm 10 years from retirement and I see that there is an issue in that all of my net worth is in my 401k and that when I retire, every dime I take out is going to be taxable. Maybe I should be working on accumulating some assets outside of that. And Dan, Dan, that you're like, you're, you're, you're hitting my sales scripts here. Man. You're hitting <laughs> a little close to home. <laughs> Yeah, well, it, you know, it is it is sales. I don't call it that. It doesn't feel that way to me. It's, you know, I'm a, I'm a professional. I know what the hell I'm doing and I can help these people. And my job in these meetings is not to convince them that I'm the smartest person in the world or I know something that they don't and therefore they need me desperately for that. It's to serve them. It's to serve their needs. And I need to understand the needs in order to do that. And that's what that conversation is all about because fi- financial planning is a process. It has certain steps to it and certain standards associated that are, are universal around the world, literally. But when applied to a particular client, it needs to be customized and personalized, and it needs to be focused on what's important to them. I I love the framing of that. That like I'm I'm not here to try to show them I'm smarter than they are. I'm I'm just here to try to show them that I can be of service. Yeah, I mean, like I said, around here, I'm usually not the smartest person in the room. Well, so. I guess when you when your clients are literally rocket scientists, like you're you're setting yourself up for some challenges if you're going to try to always be the smartest person in the room. Right. No, but I do have expertise, very specific expertise that's very valuable because once once you've got yourself into a state where you are justifiably confident that you have these areas in, in good order. Life's a lot better. You run into fewer true problems and you worry less about less things. You know, there's a, there's just an unbelievable amount of value in that. And we, we completely under underappreciate that when we get caught in the weeds, you know, about a, is it passive or active or this, that, or the other. I mean, those things are important on the margins, but the, the big picture is where people get the most, most of the value from financial planning. I, I think it was, um, pretty sure it was Elisa Bowie and Dave and, and that that group that put it something like, I'll paraphrase them, advice is nice, but planning is magical. So true. So so for clients that say yes on the on the engagement, right? Like you 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 sent them a letter, they're like, yep, sounds good. These are the areas I would like to feel more confident in. And it seems like you know what you're talking about and can give me some good service on this. I want to move forward, Dan, I want to get started. So what what comes next? Like what how does the process actually move forward? Yeah, the way it's supposed to, <laughs> which is you get you get the information about the areas that you're going to be looking at, right? Gather that information, take a look at how that's working for them. I mean, sometimes they don't think they're not confident, but they really are in pretty good shape. You know, they're doing all the things that they can do or should be doing at the time. And so, how do you actually gather the data? Here's a eight page fillable PDF. Please enter in these numbers, or you will like come on back in and we're, we're going to have another conversation. I'm going to ask you a whole bunch of questions to try to understand your financial situation. Like how, how do you actually go about the, okay, it's time to gather some of this data. Yeah. So there's, there's a little questionnaire thing. You know, we rely on them providing statements for things. I, I don't see any need for them to write on a piece of paper that they have $500,000 in an IRA when they could just provide the damn IRA statement. They'll find that a little easier too. And if, if they can't find the statement, then that tells me a little bit about their organizational level. So they need some help with that. We basically gather documents and the basic information from them, look at it, and then go back to them in a, a session for with clarifying questions. 
sometimes it's done by phone or Zoom or in person. It just it depends on on what there is there. So we'll build out a, a set of assumptions. We'll go over that with them. And we'll change those based on their feedback as well before we go crunching any numbers. The vast majority of our the clients that I work with directly are retired or about to be pretty close. You know, so we're doing we are doing some modeling. We are doing some Monte Carlo stuff. You know, those those types of things. But yeah, gather the data, see how things look, see where they could be improved. You know, try to shore up the weaknesses without weakening the strengths. So I'm I'm struck by that kind of framing that you you start with just send us our information. You know, short 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 questionnaire of the background information, and just send us all the the statements and the financials and such. And then you do have a I guess like I'll call it a data meeting maybe you've got a different label for it. like you do have a follow-up meeting but the focus of that meeting is is clarifying questions about the data and the stuff that you've given us because i'm not i'm not going to ask you about your uh, investment accounts the rest of your stuff because I, I already got that because you sent it to me i'm I'm just going to get into the clarifying questions i got a follow-up question about this it seems like something's missing what whatever those follow-ups are when you start looking at their stuff and saying i think there's there's more here right and and it's there there's flexibility around that cuz you you're not really sure so you you ask for a certain amount of data you get it and then there's usually another round of of data that doesn't require a conversation some of it does you know just it just depends it depends a lot a lot of times when you get into things like insurances and estate planning issues what you're looking at was purchased or drafted and executed years ago. So you got to get into are these people still around? You know, is this what was your thinking here with this trust or whatever? And that's more of a qualitative thing than a quantitative thing. So and and so once you've gathered data, you're formulating, you know, the plan, I guess capital T, capital P, the the plan. So what ultimately do you do and bring back to clients? Is there a is there a plan presentation meeting? What do you bring into that meeting? Would you you know produce a written plan deliverable? Like what is what does planning look like for you when you get to the point of okay, it's time for the plan? Yeah, so we use the, the you know a bad mouth software. Now I'm going to talk about how extensively we use it. <laughs> that sounds like a contradiction, and it kind of is, but it also isn't. We use Money Tree as our workhorse. It is not visually exciting. By any stretch of the imagination, but it is very good for detailing cash flows. Great audit trail. And when you start approaching retirement or are retired, that's really where the rubber meets the road, right? Getting all the bills paid and adequate cash flow, all that kind of thing. So what we do is we use a basic model to get them to understand the dynamics involved with the cash flow. You know, your investment return matters here. But not just the average, especially not the average. It's the volatility, and so this is what a Monte Carlo simulation does, and why it's important. Here's what it tells us. Here's what it doesn't tell us. Right? It does not tell you your odds. This is this. You and I are in so much agreement on this point, Michael. It is not telling you the odds of success. It is telling you the number of failed simulations based on this set of assumptions. And this set of assumptions is the asset allocation doesn't change, the cash flow doesn't, you know, all these different things. So it's really more about the odds that you're going to have to do something different than what we modeled. So when do we have to do something different than what we modeled? And what would those things be? What other things can we do? So, you know, it's not 
if there's going to be a bad bear market, there's going to be a retiree today, right? 65, 30 year life expectancy. On average, historically, they've seen six bear markets about every five years is a 20% decline, various degrees. So it's not if, it's when. And what are you going to do about it? That's that's the important thing. So let's preview this. Let's let so there's a certain amount of that that's built into these simulations. The bad markets are already in there, but we talk about the levers that they can pull. Right? You can be less aggressive with your investments after a crash. That never works. You can show them that. Right? Being aggressive doesn't necessarily help either. You could go back to work, maybe, maybe not. Right? You can change your expenses. That's the most powerful lever that they have. And they have to understand these dynamics and what realistically can help. And you go through that and you talk to them about it. And eventually they'll say, well, what if we sold this piece of property? Okay, well, let's go through the what ifs, right? And eventually they settle in on something that they think matches what they're going to do. They look at those models. They look at the Monte Carlo results. They understand what that means by the time we're done with the conversation. And they they have confidence. They have a plan. You know, they don't have a guarantee. There is no guarantee, but they have a plan, and it really puts a spring in their step, and they feel good about things. And we move on to uh, getting the plan to work. You know, just getting the investments squared away, getting the insurances in place, updating the estate plans, integrating the tax planning, all that kind of stuff. As your producing plans and output, I mean, are you a literally like printing off a bunch of money tree reports do you like to you know make your make your own things in word do you like just put it up there on the screen and do all of this interactively like how, how do you actually present all this and have the conversation we do we do most all of it now interactively on the screen and at the end of that modeling meeting session it's would you like a copy of any of this and i'd, I'd say probably three out of four times no, we're good. And the other time, yes, okay. Well, let's put this up. We'll put this in your portal. Okay. Striking in of itself, right? That just and three quarters of the time they say no. Right, because it's not about the document. It's about the plan, and not the plan as a document. The plan as a process. And now we have a set of to dos that we have in mind. Should things go well for us? Should things not go well for us? Should this happen? Should that happen? There's there's a plan in the intangible sense, and that's what that's what they need to feel confident. And so, what comes next? Next after what part did we stop at? Right, after <laughs> we like we've gone we've gone through our plan presentation meeting. We put Money Tree up on the up on the screen. They're hopefully leaving with some reasonable confidence about where they where they financially stand. And as you put it, that like there is literally a plan. Like I you know. I don't know whether things are going to go well or go poorly, but I do know that we have a plan for handling either. So, so we do we do formalize a written investment policy statement out of that. Equity to fixed mix is informed by that whole planning process. That's one of the levers you can you can pull from time to time, right? Create that investment policy statement. Once that's all endorsed and agreed to, then uh, you know we get to the implementation, whatever that means. So for the investment management, we get things as close to the ideal that we can get them. Given the circumstances, you know, we'll coordinate with insurance agents to get the insurance in place. We'll keep encouraging them to get to the estate attorney to update those things. The tax planning, we, you know, we take care of that in-house, uh, even if we're not doing the prep, obviously. 
we just go from there. And then a few months later, touch base, how's it going? Where are we at with these to-dos? What do you got coming? Here's what we see. Anything you see? All right. And then a few months later, another call. Hey, how's it going? What do you see coming? Here's what we see. Here's what's going on. And just go from there. And occasionally, there's a big thing that happens, and we have to, it, it warrants rerunning the models, revisiting those. But you know, that's another thing I hear all the time too, right? Get the money caller result and put it in their client portal so they can see it every day. I don't see much value in that at all. It's just not necessary. I mean, so your your number is eighty seven percent today, and it's eighty six two weeks from now. What, I mean, what you know, what, what does that mean? It doesn't mean anything. They- so I I did want to circle back and hear a little bit more about this team member that you called the the data diva. You know, I think so so many of us these days struggle with the world of just managing all the data of the business, all of the different software that integrates or doesn't integrate or is supposed to integrate, but then it rarely seems to actually integrate as well as the salesperson said it was going to integrate. And then we've got more work to do to make it make it talk together the way that's supposed to talk together. It's it's a it's a pain point for so many advisory firms. And so I'm just I'm struck that from just a pure business management and you've essentially said like, now nah, we're just actually going to hire a full-time person whose job is to just deal with this. Yeah, that's right. And it's been a little over a year now, and it has been just as transformative as developing an investment department and, and having that handled. It has freed up a lot of time for the people that were involved in that. And it's not their skill set, you know, you need you, different strokes for different folks. Not everybody makes a good client for us. We don't make a good planner for everybody. And the same is true with all the functions in your business. And you get somebody like Lisa who is just wired that way, the right way for that job, and enjoys project management and processes and creating them and getting it to work and refining them and assimilating feedback from all the people on the team. And it's just fantastic because none of the rest of us have to get bogged down in trying to get these things to work. And technology changes changes fast, man. You got to stay on top of it. So, so just help me understand more, like what, just what this role looks like. I, I like, well, I guess what, what is the formal title? Cause it sounds like data diva is sort of our friendly internal term. Like, what did you call it? And, and just what does this job description look like in practice? Just, I don't, I don't see firms with this. Yeah, I use the term data diva because I don't remember the formal title. I'm not in charge of HR. That's Charlie Fitzgerald's main thing. So, um, <laughs> Charlie being one of your business partners. Yes, that's correct. We switched over to Salesforce this year, for instance. Okay, we're still switching over to Salesforce. So she was the one that led that whole transition. She is the one that is recreating the workflows. She is the one that is helping each of the team members learn, doing training on how to use Salesforce, how our workflows work and where to find the information, all of that kind of thing. She's the one that takes care of all that stuff. So if somebody says it would be neat if we had a process that did this, right? Here's something we do often. This is something we could probably automate a lot or at least automate the tracking of it getting done as it's handed off from person to person. Lisa's the one that comes in and gets that to work. She also handles all the downloads and things like that as well. So this isn't, you know, I was saying the fun data diva title, like this isn't solely about 
data per se, like let's just you know collect and manage all the data and dashboards or reporting or whatever it is. This is sort of just systems and pr- systems integrations as well. This is managing the technology and the integrations and the data that flows across them and the adoption of it within the within the practice itself, not not from an IT perspective. I'm, I'm kind of understanding now why you distinguished it earlier. Not from an IT perspective, but from a like business systems and process perspective. We have a separate IT firm that we've had for years that configures the laptops, the firewalls, keeps the bad guys out, penetration testing and all that kind of thing. Yeah, that's a completely separate, the networking, that's completely separate function. This is this is about getting the software that we use as planners, as client service people to work for us and improve our efficiencies. And so what what led you to a role like this just to actually do it? Because I, I don't know very many firms that have have actually hired and created a role like this. So what what led you to actually do it and, and like why why now? It's the exact same reason the sole proprietor will hire an assistant because you find yourself doing things that keeps you from doing the things you want to be doing. Right. So if she was not when she when she was not there, people within our firm had to be doing this. And it was the advisors, the planners. A couple of them that kind of were assigned to okay, let's let's create a workflow in the old CRM. They're the ones that had to go in there and get that figured out and work with the CRM people to to get it to go. So they're not using that time to serve clients. And there comes a point where how many people do we have doing stuff like that? How much of that stuff is there to do and maintain? And you get to a point as you get to I mean, we're not huge, but we've got 18 people total. That's a lot of that's a lot of people that are interfacing with the software in different ways, right? Think think about the CRM there. You know, my my client service manager lives in CRM in a very different way than I live in CRM. And all of that's got to work and it's got to integrate and it's got to stay maintained and it just becomes too big of a job. It's time to bring somebody in to take the load off. Because our planners should be planning. And so I guess I am curious as you look back, is this one of those like in retrospect, we should have done this years ago, kind of thing, or, or are you just feeling like, nah, like this was about the point. Like you know, we could manage this when we were smaller, but hey, by the time we're about eighteen people, there's just a little bit too many people and too much complexity and too much business systems that this was the right time to hire this person. Yeah, well, that's a classic example. But it depends on who you ask. You ask the guys that were having to do this stuff. It, it, we should have done it earlier. If you ask me, who never does, did any of that, it's like, yeah, it's about right time. How do you evaluate this from the business end? Yeah, so we have people that were involved are not as involved, right? So they have more time to do other things. And are they doing them? And some of that is marketing and prospecting. And the answer to that is they are doing more and we're seeing a result though. We opened a new office in Tampa recently. So now we have three offices. And we did we put that off for quite a bit of time because we really needed somebody to champion that cause. And that wasn't happening. But with Lisa coming in, Mike Salmon, another one of my partners, was got a lot more time freed up, not you know, a gazillion hours a week or anything, but but enough time that more attention could be paid to that and develop that. And now we have a Tampa office. And where do you find someone to to do this? 
Again, I'm not the HR guy, but you know, it's the same place we, we, you find others. You just put the word out that you're looking. She came from a law firm background. Okay. But this was, this wasn't a like, someone's got a friend who's really good at this and, and, and we need to add this position and, and hire them. It sounds like this was, this was more of a, okay, we think we need this position for the business. So like wrote a job description, put it on whatever the job sites of choice are and like people applied and you found someone that fit the job well and hired them. So as you look back on just the, the evolution of the business over the past 20 odd years, what surprised you the most about just building an advisory business? Well, in looking back, right over, so I started doing financial planning not too long after I got out of college. And what, what is surprising to me is just how different what I do with my time when I'm in the office on a day-to-day basis is compared to the way it was 30 years ago. And it parallels the evolution of planning in general. It's gotten much more consultative, right? Much more holistic, much more personal. I don't spend a whole lot of time on you know, mutual fund research or anything like that. That was a big deal 30 years ago. How, how I spend my day is very different. That's a big surprise. But it, it's also surprising to me how little has changed over 30 years. Because at the core of all of this is the relationship with the client and the financial planning process. That has not changed. It's still about helping people get to where they want to be financially. And if they're where they want to be financially, stay there. It's None of that stuff has changed. All the, all the same hangups people had 30 years ago, they have now. It's a little, the, the main difference that I see is, is media relations. It's, it's a little bit different because there was still a lot of crappy information out there 30 years ago and biased and all that, but the volume at it wasn't thrown at people in, in such a high volume. And so, I mean, it is, a, it is the 21st century skill to be able to manage your intake of media in a way that doesn't cause you problems, not just financially, but in other ways too. I mean, how many, how many people do you meet these days that just seem miserable and they really shouldn't be in the big scheme of things because they have people in their family that love them. They have a roof over their head. They have enough income, but they're still just miserable. And most of the time it's because they watch too much damn TV and let them get worked up. I always see that with their retired clients all the time. They don't they they know they can't go back into the workforce. So they're relying on their assets to pay them to do their whatever they want to do. And it should be the time of their life and they're just miserable. They're worried about themselves, they're worried about their children and their grandchildren, all because they watch too much TV, or they can't process what they're getting in a way that keeps them mentally healthy. It's 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 a tragedy. And and again to me that helps speak to the technology has changed so much, you know, just, it does exponentially so much more. I mean, just literally like when there was, there was no internet around when you were getting your business going, you know, we talk about just the the progress of robo advisors over the past five or 10 years, but like, you know, go back to pre-internet, pre-smartphones, pre all of that. And like, well, I'll be darned. We're, we're still charging roughly 1% fees doing holistic financial planning and, and running profitable businesses. Like it, it's, to me, when you zoom out with the lens that much and look at just how far the technology has come, like that, that's part of what makes me chuckle so much of all the discussions of 
well, you know, this next big thing in technology is is going to be the thing that disrupts financial advisors and financial services. Like not not to be complacent and blase about it, but like if the level of technology development over the past 30 years didn't even make a dent, I'm really not so nervous about this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, most of the things that have disrupted took time to disrupt. You know, and the media likes to say, oh, it's a disruptor and it's going to change everything instantly. It doesn't it doesn't it doesn't tend to work that way. It doesn't tend to work that way. It's an evolution. I am curious though, just the, the like the discussion of like where where your time is focused and goes and 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 how that's changed. So can you can you talk a little more? Just like what what does a typical week look like for you at this point? Yeah. So I, I have um responsibility for some clients as their lead advisor. So that that comes first. I'm always thinking about what I need to do to integrate whatever's new for them. But I'm also the primary client educator, I guess would be a way to put it. I'm responsible for the first drafts of almost all the communication that comes out of the, the firm. So I'm constantly working on writing up something for somebody, for clients, for the firm, for the website, I write an article every month for Financial Advisor Magazine. Been doing that for a decade or so. Most of them, all of them are at least online. Some of them go into the print edition. So I'm always writing one of those. I write Q&A columns for Market Watch every couple of weeks. Been doing that for eight years. I do a Q&A for the local paper. And most of those things that go out to the public, you know, start with a client conversation or a situation with a client that either I'm lead for or somebody else is and because we we have a meeting once a week here in melbourne where all of us gather and talk about what's going on with different clients new clients existing clients different situations and that's just because out of the 18 people in the firm and the and the five partners just you're 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 the writer guy so so you're the writer guy yeah so i don't i don't do anything with bookkeeping i don't do anything with technology i don't do anything with hr I, sounds like I don't do anything at all, but I, I'm doing, I'm doing I mean, all that other stuff. Do you meet some clients oh, yeah. occasionally? Absolutely. Absolutely. love to meet with clients. Um, I've got great clients. They're fabulous people. You know, Almost all of them have what they have because they did the right things. They lived within their means and, and saved over long periods of time. Now they want to take care of it. And they're fascinating. Fasc- lots of fascinating people around here on the Space Coast. Yeah. And, and so I'm... I'm struck by this internal meeting as well. So you said every week, like all of the advisors are coming together just to talk about the conversations that are coming up with clients. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, well, the ones here in Melbourne. So it's me, DJ and uh, Ryan Osborne, also a certified financial planner. The quote, entire advisory team, which are all of the CFP licensees. We probably have a, a meeting about things like that at least once a month. But that's how you, you know, that's how you share knowledge. That's how you come up with understanding different, different situations. It accelerates the learning process. Uh, Ryan's been with us for three years. He does not have lead responsibility yet with clients, but he's definitely on that track. DJ came to us last year. He's got 20 some odd years of experience and you know, you can accelerate the learning process by being exposed to more, more cases. So that's what that's all about. You know, come into some interesting situations or clients ask you interesting questions, you know, what, did, what, what was on their mind and, you know, where did that come from and how did you answer it? And 
what happened and did they understand that explanation? What, how, other, how else could we have explained that to our client? You know, it's great to be able to explain things in more than one way because people receive messages in different ways. And so it's, it's partially making sure that the advice that comes out of this firm is sound. We don't really have a problem with that. It's, it's, everybody's pretty sharp, but it's, it's also a great way to help develop and mentor and learn. And, you know, I've been in this for 30 years and I'm still learning stuff. There's no end to it. That's part of the beauty of the job. There is no end to the learning. It's great. And, and so this runs weekly? Uh, here in like, Melbourne, yeah. Okay. And so as you've gone through 25, 30 odd years of, of growth and evolution in the business, what was the low point for you? On the journey, there have not been many, which is very fortunate. But I think the the thing that threw me off the most was very early in my career, probably around ninety five or so. We had formed one of the first team practices within American Express Financial Advisors. There were three of us. We went through this whole big planning process to create this team. I worked, it was great going forward because I had a really good handle on the planning that needs to go into a partnership and you know, planning for the contingencies, right? Retirement, death, disability, lack of performance, whatever. And who's going to do what, right? Who's responsible for what? You're doing, the idea of any kind of team or ensemble is that the labor is divided, you know, how do you, how is that exactly going to work right so that was that was that served me well later on down the road but very shortly after we formed that team one of the three of us basically disappeared checked out had like a midlife crisis and it had started before we had formalized the process so when that happened and he was underperforming you know the documents and the agreements laid out what would happen but it threw me off because it was the first time that somebody flat out broke a promise to me of significance. So I just, you know, and I, I didn't really handle it real well for a few months and it made me very leery. It reduced my trust in humanity in general <laughs> for a little while. And eventually, you know, I was able to refocus on the people that did keep their promises. And there's a lot of great people out there. And as you know, being involved with the financial planning profession, there's lots and lots of really quality folks out there. So you don't have to look very hard to find good people. And eventually, I went solo, moved to the independent broker-dealer channel for a little bit with a state-registered RIA, I eventually cut ties with uh, the broker-dealer world, was solo fee-only for a while, and then found my partners back in uh, 0203. And we've been an ensemble ever since. So it, yeah, that that was that was a bummer for sure. So so looking back on that, like, was there what was there something you you missed? Was there something like you should have seen but didn't? Was this just one of these unavoidable things that happens in life? You know, I spent a lot of time. Why didn't I see it coming? Why didn't I see it coming? And there really weren't red flags. That that was part of the betrayal, right? That's what made it so painful because it was he was presenting himself as all in for something that he wasn't all in for. Yeah, that's why that's why it hurt and that's why it threw me for a loop. And so what what changed that you had a a partnership that went that badly the first time around, but you were 
still comfortable and willing to come to the table for another one later. Because I, I, I certainly know folks that, you know, what one stung twice shy. Like I'm, I'm just I've been there, done that. <laughs> Partnerships suck. Not, not doing that anymore. And and they never come back to it. Right. With my remaining partner, just splitting things between the two of us, the workload. I got enough of a taste of that that I knew that I did not want to be a sole proprietor. I did not want to practice outside of a team arrangement. There's just too many aspects of running the business that I find tedious, I guess, <laughs> you know, but they're really important. So if you surround yourself with people that also view those things as important, but not tedious, exciting, you know, something that floats their boat, it could work out really well. So I was always, I always, even when I was solo, I, I always just kind of kept the antenna up for people that were looking for the type of activities that I was good at, you know, and that saw the the benefit of the, the quote ensemble. Interesting framing. So it like for you, it was an assumption or an expectation, like, this business is going to grow. We're going to end up being sizable. That means a lot of things have to be done, including things that I don't necessarily want to do. So I need to I need to come to the table and be finding partners from the start because there's going to be things that I don't want to do. And so I'm just going to find someone else that likes doing them and they can do that and I'm going to do the other thing. Yes. And I could have just hired out a lot of that stuff, right? Didn't have to have partners to do that. But I was just more comfortable getting those things taken care of by people who had skin in the game. I don't know where that comes from exactly. Maybe it's, you know, team sports back in the day. I wasn't good at any of them, but I played a lot of them. You know, I just, uh, it's so much, it's so much more gratifying to me to compete in a team setting than uh, solo. Always, always has been. I get much more gratification when I'm part of a group that accomplishes something rather than when I accomplish something on my own. I, I enjoy that too, don't get me wrong, but that's just, just how I was wired. So I wanted people to skin in the game and that leads you to partners more so than outsourcing or further employees. You still have to manage the employees and the outsourcing and managing is not, I'm one of those. Managing people is not really something that I'm excited about. Mentoring, yes. Working with them, yes. Collaborating, yes. Management, eh. Not so much. That's why you're proudly not the HR guy. That's right. And I'm eternally grateful that Charlie is. And he loves that. He loves that stuff. You know, and Ron, Ron's great with the bookkeeping and technology and you know, it works great. And they don't want to they don't want to do the stuff I do. Yeah, right. You know, for for your role of of I don't want to be doing the HR and management stuff, you've got a partner that's like yeah, you know what sounds really awful? Need to sit down for an afternoon and write a client letter. Yeah, right. I mean, you write a lot of stuff, Michael. You know how excruciating that could be. It's oh, yeah. excruciating for me too, but I enjoy the excruciation if that's a thing. You know, it's 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 part of it's part of. Uh, I do feel some level of satisfaction getting through that process and getting something out there, even if everything I've ever written is deeply flawed. So, like looking back on this over the years, what what do you know now that you wish you could go back and tell you from the 1990s when your career was still getting going that would have maybe helped it go faster or better somehow there's well yeah so you, you don't know what you don't know you make the best decisions that you can at the time that you have to make the decision 
you try to get as much information as possible to make those decisions. So you really can't spend a whole lot of time regretting. I don't spend much time on that. I should have pulled, it would have been nice, I think, to have pulled the trigger on some things a little earlier, but I don't know that I could have done it a little earlier, right? So the thing that that comes up when I reflect on me 30 years ago, 25 years ago, is I wish I could have been a little bit more patient. I think I would have enjoyed the journey even more than I did if I had a little bit more level of patience. You know, every... I wanted what, things to what were you impatient about? Growth. You know, when I got out of college, I went to North Carolina chasing after a girl and took a job, first job out of college, selling life insurance to tobacco farmers in rural eastern North Carolina. So you get out of the car, coat and tie. They know you're not from around there. It was an interesting experience. But I learned a lot of good stuff. I, I learned I like deer meat biscuits and collard greens and pulled pork. Oh, I love pulled pork. And I learned a lot about insurance and that served me well too. But that's where I found financial planning. I ran into somebody that actually had had a plan, you know, one of those old fat binder deals, right? From IDS, right? And I went to IDS. I said, uh, this looks like a much better way to handle these things than what I'm doing. You know, you need to hire me. And they did. That's interesting. So wait, so you, you, you like went and sought out a job doing planning at IDS because you saw a client with an IDS plan and said, I want to figure out how to do this for my clients. Yeah. No, I didn't even really give the, the, the binder much of a look. He just kind of showed it to me because we got it all covered, right? That was his excuse for not engaging in the insurance discussion. But just intuitively, I knew that all these different areas, if they were covered and integrated together, you're going to be in a better financial position. And that would be valuable because that's hard to do. It's very confusing. You know, what I saw as an insurance agent for the one less than a year that I did it was people make most of their financial decisions on a piecemeal basis. I think I need, I got a baby, so I think I need insurance. So I'm going to go buy some insurance, you know, that kind of thing. And that's what attracted me to planning. And I got lucky. I got some support there from people that really did buy into financial planning. At the time in the early 90s, there were something like 30,000 CFPs. And I, I, the number that stands out of my memory is 10,000 of them were or once were with IDS. So, I mean, you know, the Freedmans up in uh, Massachusetts, Barry Friedman, Mark Friedman's father is retired now. He was an old IDS guy. Bob Klosterman up in Minnesota, who John Guyton used to work for, old IDS guy. Uh, John used to train at IDS. He was a trainer. You know, a lot. That was that was the epicenter of getting plans done, and they were big on supporting CFP. So that's how I got down that track, right? Yeah, I, I'm. I continue to be fascinated. Is if you talk to all, you know. Anybody who's been in the business more than 20 years since the 1990s or or prior, like the number of of people in the financial planning track who came either either came out of IDS on the on the mutual fund side or came out of Cigna on the life insurance side, because Cigna was for the life insurer that was really big on going deep on financial planning. Like it is absolutely astonishing to me the the legacy those those two firms have in just seeding an entire generation of of planners that then you know paid it forward and are building the profession. Yep. So yeah, you know, that's where it, that's where it started. And I had people that really cared about planning and doing it well within the confines of that system. And so the evolution of my career was just basically moving to an ever improving system. So uh, IDS became American Express Financial Advisors. I left that 
to go into the independent broker dealer world with the state registered RIA. I could see the writing on the wall with these at that time. This was back in 2000-ish. Cut ties with with uh, then NASDR, now FINRA, right? Just went fee only at that point. And then business further evolved into a, an ensemble because of all the experiences that came. So what what were you seeing in you know, 20 odd years ago that said, I want to cut my securities licenses and go fee only? Yeah. So the you know, fee only had already started. It was already a thing. Very small minority, still a minority, but really small minority at the time. And I met with a prospective client, spent over an hour with them. And he was asking, not in an adversarial way, just very good questions about compensation and conflicts. And he left and I could hear the door go thud. And my brain said, you don't know a damn thing about that guy. He knows everything there is to know about compensation and conflicts, but you don't know anything about him. What a waste of time. And it just occurred to me that most people, they won't put it in these terms, but most people want a purely fiduciary relationship with their advisor, where the advisor has a fiduciary relationship to them, serve their interest alone. That's what they want. And it's kind of implied in the definition of advice and advisor. I mean, we we don't actually necessarily do that in our industry and 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 the title's kind of gotten out there in lots of ways. But I feel like it's just right, like the dictionary word definition of advice, like it's kind of the definition of advice that is for the person receiving the advice. Like that's what makes it advice. So how many of my clients, this all this this further occurrence as I'm thinking about this back then is how many more of my clients have wonderings about this stuff. They're wondering if what I'm telling them is going to be better for me or better for them. I wonder how many prospective clients didn't become clients because they wondered about that, right? And you know, full disclosure, put it all on the table, be very frank about how you're paid, what the conflicts, it's all good. And I just couldn't get that idea out of my head. I, I basically would not hire myself, especially at that point, you know, still having some trust issues uh, because of that, right? And I said, well, that's got to stop. So, you know, I, I I have two pain in the butt regulators. Maybe one would be better. That was another thing that occurred to me. And so I, 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 I cut ties and went fee only. Now, I didn't suddenly become smarter. I didn't become, you know, more ethical by doing that. But I did switch to a framework from which there are fewer conflicts to deal with and have to manage. And a framework that just made more sense to me intuitively, and I think makes more sense to clients intuitively. So that's why I cut those ties. It wasn't, you know, uh, being in the independent broker dealer world, you know, there's there's not as much, at least not then, where I was, there was not much, you know, you need to do this, that, or the other kind of pressure. It's like, here's all these different things you could do, you figure it out. But I was, it was worry about the, the, the clients doubting. I don't want clients wondering that. I want clients thinking about what, what they want for themselves. I want them engaged in the conversation. I want them understanding what the trade-offs are. I want them you know, to make good decisions for them and their families. And I want to be able to guide them without the potential poison doubt about my incentives. So that's why that happened. And, and so what advice would you give to younger, newer advisors coming into the profession today? Be patient. I mean, I went through something that Philip Palaviv talks about all the time with people just coming in to the field out of college in particular. It's partly an age group thing, stage of life thing. But, and my son is, is one, he's trying to figure out exactly what he's going to do with himself right now. You go through this phase where you're, when, when you're young like that, where you're trying to figure out what it is you want to do with yourself. 
right? And then when you figure that out, you have to decide where you're going to do it. So you might not get a job coming out of college exactly where you want to be. And it's okay. You'll, you'll figure out if that's where, it, first you got to figure out if planning is really the field for you. You'll learn that fairly soon. And then you have to decide if where you're doing it is where you want to be doing it. And that's a whole other, other issue. But, you know, you look around and ask a lot of questions and, and, and explore. As an employer, I don't like that. I want people to come here out of college and, and never leave. You know, I don't want them to find themselves and find that they don't want to be here. They want to be doing this, but it's some other, somebody else's shop. I don't want that. But, you know, as a dad and as somebody that's gone through the experience in real life, that's, that's what happens. Is this what I want to do? And is this where I want to do it? So, you know, get, get, get your foot in the door somewhere, but don't stress so much about whether your first job is at the perfect firm. Yes, correct. And, but I also want to, I see this a lot with young people. They have this overly idealized or romanticized idea of what it's like to work in a fee on the RIA. And there's nothing really romantic about it. It's work, man. It's, it is, uh, it was just me and my computer for a number of years there after I, I, I went off on my own. It was fun to help the clients. It was fun to solve the problems. It was not fun running the business. And you, you do eliminate most, but not all conflicts. You do have a, a structure as a fee on the IRA that's easier to manage all that navigate that that type of stuff but all the same problems that people have are still there tax code markets politicians family all that kind of thing it does not solve the problem you know if you cannot have a conversation with somebody and show them how they'll be better off by going through the financial planning process and you're working at a brokerage house or insurance company or an independent bd if you can't do that in that environment you might not be able to do it as a fee-only person either. It's not the compensation that's your problem. It's your communication problem that you need to fix. So where is your focus right now? Like what are what are you working on? What else are you working on? So around the firm, it's it's the same as it has been. It's been the communications, it's been um, dealing with clients. We're you know, continue to evolve, we're continue to work on developing our people. We've got succession plan kicking in with uh, additional purchases by the, the smaller shareholders coming up. So that's, that's kind of just a natural progression. On the side, I'm currently a member of the board of directors of CFP board and the practitioner editor for the Journal of Financial Planning. So help out those two groups a little bit here and there too. Just a little bit. Uh, the JFP job, uh, it's a weird gig because all of the decisions about what gets published is done by staff. And we're just asked, I've just asked my opinion about some things occasionally. <laughs> so most months, I don't even know what's going to show up uh, in there. I've been real happy with, with what's happened over the last year with that publication. One of the things I was asked to do was to help them get some columnists. So I was fortunate to get positive responses um, from the likes of Alex Armstrong. Mark DeBersion has a couple columns for us. One of them's in this month's edition. Some folks nobody's ever heard of. Are, are in are writing for us now that are pretty good and some some folks in between we've had some good cover stories and this month god bless him bill bengen was kind enough to do a write-up about how he would approach safe withdrawal these days you know was this 25 years after 27 years after he published that paper how would he look at it now so it's it's an interesting read just to get his perspective on how he'd he'd approach it it's a very different process so yeah that, that's been fun but that that's low that's low labor. The CFP board 
jobs a little bit more labor intense. <laughs> so. For for those who are curious, we'll put a link out to Bengen's article in the in the Journal of Financial Planning. So this is episode two hundred and thirty. So if you go to kitsis dot com slash two three zero, we'll have a a link out in the show notes. So so Dan, as as we wrap up, you know, this is a podcast about success, and and one of the themes that always comes up is just the the word success means different things to different people. Sometimes different different things to us, different stages in our life. So you know, you've you've had this wonderful path of success for the business itself. You're not just just not just building a eight hundred million dollar RA, but uh, giving back and involvement in the profession, leadership with FPA and the CFP board and the Journal of Financial Planning. And so, you know, as you've just checked a lot of the boxes in the in the professional sense of success, how do you define success for yourself at this point? Yeah, I mean, one of the really weird byproducts of being involved as a volunteer for the profession over the years is I've gotten to go some interesting places. <laughs> I've literally spoken on six continents over the years, you know, and I've had led delegations to places like Russia and India, China, South Africa, Australia, to speak about financial planning. And one thing that travel does for you is it gives you a little bit different perspective on things. And success for just about everybody I've ever met boils down to some very simple concepts, which is they want to be doing things that they enjoy with people they care about and not have anybody mess with them. So yeah, you can you can look at at the size of the firm, you know, and you can surmise how that is translated to our families here financially and all that and say that's success. But none of it means squat if I'm not a good husband good father you know and get to do things with my my friends and family my staff people i care about my clients so as long as i'm able to to do that be a good husband be a good father be a good planner partner those things that's success that's success well, i love it i love it thank you so much dan for joining us on the financial advisor success podcast well you've been a blessing blessing to me my family, and the profession. I, pr- I appreciate you very much. Oh, thank you, Dan. I appreciate that. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.